Hey folks, this is Anatoly, and you're listening to the No Sharding Podcast from Solana. And today I have Jill with me, who's an investor at Slow Ventures. Great to be here. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, likewise. Um, really excited to talk to you. You were one of the first people that we talked to, and it was just really me in a white paper, just kind of chasing everybody around. I remember that. We met in uh, in at Phil's, yeah, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah, down on Folsom. Crypto Phil's, they call it. And, and uh, <laughs> your reaction was that, like, okay... You guys don't seem like you're full of shit, <laughs> which was at the time, I think, like a pretty high praise. It, yeah, it is. It, it still is, I would say. But especially at that time, I mean, this was, what, 2017? This was like... Uh, and it's like uh, probably January 2018. Okay. Like, yeah. Okay, yeah. But still, that was like one of the local maximas, I would say, of people walking around being full of <laughs> shit with ICOs and white papers. But yep. yeah, and you've come a long way since then. Congratulations. Yeah. Hopefully you. I have too. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I think the space has come a long way um, in a lot of respects. Like, I think there's projects that have some users, some, some inklings of, of usage. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, you know, you can tip uh, farmers on the IBM blockchain, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, Asia just walked in and, and brought us a coffee and I said, oh, hey, should we uh, go on the blockchain, the IBM blockchain, and tip the farmers who grew these coffee beans? But I don't know if that's exactly the best use case of the technology, but maybe we can get into that later. Yeah, yeah. Uh, do you want to, like, before we get into the, like, controversy or all the fun stuff, do you want to, like, kind of give a brief intro of yourself, how you got into the space? Yeah, for sure. So let's see, I, out of college, uh, started working on Wall Street. Um, I had no background in technology or computer science or programming. Um, my background was really in economics, political economics. Uh, I was working on the emerging markets trading desk at Goldman. Um and had only really heard of, this was like 2012, had only really heard of Bitcoin in the context of sort of sketchy, like people trying to buy drugs online, dark web markets. Uh, but that year, sort of late 2012, early 2013, I had a buddy, a broker, a friend of mine, so basically a colleague uh, down in Argentina tell me that he was getting his money offshore using Bitcoin. And that was the first context that I had heard of Bitcoin again, outside of what I at the time thought of as just these sort of like very niche kind of sketchy use cases. And that really struck me as someone, again, who had an interest in something of a background in political economy. I was like, wait, this this is actually a game changer if this is allowing people to evade capital controls. And then it was shortly thereafter that like Cyprus had its whole sort of capital control crisis, Greece, and and Bitcoin started gaining more and more headlines. Was Um, this after the Mt. Gox kind of blow? This was pre-Mt. Gox. Um, So yeah, I had the pleasure actually of buying into Bitcoin I would say like relatively early. It was sort of like early 2013. And I got to experience that whole run up when Bitcoin went up to $1,000 and everyone was like losing, losing their shit about it saying, oh my God, this is so exciting. Like, you know, it's gone up 5X in just a little over a year. Like what's going on? And I, of course, was totally bought into the hype. I was like, yeah, I'm a genius. I've made all of this money on this technology thing. Um, And then... 
Mount Gox happens, the price crashes, and I just, I totally lost my shirt. And I was like, I'm an idiot. I have broken rule number one that I have for myself as a trader. Again, I was working on Wall Street as a trader. Rule number one is like, don't buy or trade anything that you don't understand. And again, as someone with no background in cryptography, no formal training in math, like at least post high school, um, you know, I did not know what I was doing playing around with Bitcoin. And that was the point, though, actually. I credit that point in time, even though I lost a lot of money in it. I I credit that point in time so as sold. being the point. Well, I mean, it it declined from $1,000 to about 200 And so, yeah, I, I sold some, but even just like the mark to market on that at the time, you know, it felt like I'd lost a lot of money. Um, I, I still have some holdings from that period, but not nearly as much as I wish I did. Uh, but there were various points of stopping back in along the way. But, you know, I said to myself, like, oh, shit, I need to sit down and actually take stock and, and understand what I'm doing um, with this and what this technology actually is. But so, you know, it's still a happy ending because I credit that point in time as being the point in time where I was like, all right, let's let's actually roll up our sleeves. And then, you know, that's what's brought me here, obviously, to having built kind of a career in the space. Yeah, I think the fact that Mt. Gox explosion didn't kill Bitcoin, I think, is what turned a lot of people around to like really understanding, OK, there's something here, right? That's like even this in huge collapse, right? Like yeah. actually didn't kill the project because it's decentralized, right? We get to this whole idea of like, what what is the point of decentralization? Yeah, um, yeah, totally. It it has that cockroach effect, right? Of like, yep. it can just keep going. It can survive no matter what what's happened. Um, so yeah, a lot of people that I talk to that are outside of the space, they ask me why what what should be the value of Bitcoin. I'm like, it should be above zero. That's all I can tell you. But like, as soon as you assign it any value above zero, then it could be anything, right? That's, totally. That's the crazy part about it. Totally. Yeah, it's very hard. And I've tried with many different approaches over the years to try and back into some kind of fundamental value. And it's very, very hard. Even relative value. It's like, yeah, I think that it should be on par with sort of the market cap of gold. But like, who's to say? Why not all precious metals, right? Yeah, like, yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. And then, like, all real estate, because that's also kind of civil-resistant physical resource that we have. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It gets weird really fast. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Above zero, though, I like that. I'm going to start telling people that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's... Um, so, like, we were, like, I guess we're still at... what? What is the use case still? Is it... Are we still at the only like real use cases avoiding capital controls? I mean, and buying drugs on the dark web. Like that's a real use case, let's be honest. Not everyone might like it. Um, but yeah, I wrote I wrote this article that I thought was gonna be a totally benign, sort of straight down the fairway opinion piece back in December. It was published in Coindesk. And of course, you know. Coindesk gonna Coindesk. They they slapped a title on it that I think was a little bit more maybe controversial, certainly more pithy than than what I could have come up with. And it was something along the lines of like, oh, cryptocurrency is only good for censored and illegal use cases. Um, 
but credit to them, like, I think that that headline actually pretty accurately sums up what my arguments were and what I actually believe as true, at least certainly at least today of cryptocurrencies. But point being, the backlash that I got for publishing that article, like everybody hated it. Like Bitcoin maximalists, OG cypherpunks, like Ethereum heads, dap boys, like you name it. Nobody liked this article. And it was just a really interesting moment of insight to me of how far we've gotten as an industry away from sort of a lot of what the original thinking was around the value of decentralized technologies in general, but then like Bitcoin specifically. Um, but but to, the value is censorship resistance. That, well, that's kind of the fundamental value. Well, right. But I think that what a lot of people have now talked themselves into and, you know, far be it for me to say like who's right, who's wrong here over the long term. But I think that what a lot of people have talked themselves into is it's not about censorship resistance. It's about openness or, you know, being borderless. It's not about um, censorship resistance. It is about uh, being able to create like Web3, which means that, you know, maybe developers, my argument there would be like, well, then what we're actually talking about is developers being censored in some way. Um, but that's not necessarily how people conceive of it. I think that when people hear censorship resistance, all they think of is like darknet, darknet markets, crypto anarchy, libertarian ideals. My, and my view is that like illegal activity that is stored in an immutable data structure and forever preserved is like the dumbest way to go about doing illegal activity, right? Like, oh, it's 100%. Like, yeah. 100%. So, so these systems, like if people have used them on Bitcoin, right? People have been caught for selling, like funding drugs and stuff. It's the dumbest place to do it because they know exactly the size, like they have all the evidence they need. And you can't hide it, right? right. So like... Right. It's and I mean all you have to do is look at uh the Silk Road bust, right. right? Where of course not only I mean there's a lot of complicating confounding factors there around Ross Ulbricht himself and um you know around who actually is uh DPR like who is running the site blah blah blah. Arguably there's still some open questions around like, you know, how many figureheads were actually behind this pseudonym or this character. But the part of that story that I love is the FBI agents who got busted because they were then trying to embezzle the funds yeah. from <laughs> yeah. their bust of the Silk Road, which of yeah. course like Katie yeah. Hahn over at Andreessen can can tell much more of that story since she was a key player in it. Um but that's always what I love to point to is like, you know, here are like the supposed good guys getting busted because they, I guess, didn't understand enough of the technology to understand that this was all going to be recorded <laughs> immutably yep. and pretty yep. transparently on a blockchain. Like, yep. guys, come on. But to your point, like it's the it's in many ways the dumbest way to go about trying to break any laws. Now, that's arguably changing is like more and more privacy technologies come down the pipeline and, and become more and more usable to people. Um, but you know, my thing there is like, you don't hear people railing against cash for this reason. Like, well, cause cash is now ubiquitous, right? 
Exactly. But if cash were to be invented and introduced today, people would be freaking out. Like policymakers would be freaking out. The general populace would be freaking out. Like it would not be accepted by the mainstream, I think. Yeah, yeah. I I think I kind of I think we would see a similar kind of progression. Right. Um, (laughs) But if if the world was running a a blockchain and somebody came up with uh, like, here's. You know, like the private keys are stored inside these metal disks mm-hmm. that cannot be traced. <laughs> we can just trade the disks around. Uh, people would probably freak out. Uh, it is it is kind of a hilarious thought experiment, right? Of like, what would people's reaction to the introduction of physical cash be today? And it's like you can imagine the, techno- the technologists, you know, wringing their hands and being like, this is absurd. Like, what are you going to do with it? Carried around in suitcases. Like, you know, what, what are you thinking here? You can imagine the policymakers freaking out saying like, this is an infringement upon, you know, our ability to enforce law. Like, well, it's the, the, like, so I saw, um, this project Kong at the ETH Denver, mm-hmm. um, no, not ETH Denver at, uh, DEF CON in Osaka. And this was cash that had a, a chip in it that had a private key. Oh, was yeah. embedded in the chip. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So imagine like a world where we have like, you know, it takes like $100 million to break this private key, right? And now I can have this, you know, coin, right? And I transfer any value I want into it once. And now it has X amount of dollars and I can give it to you, right? And you can spend it. Congratulations, you've reinvented cash. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like that classic uh, Silicon Valley saying, right, of like, congratulations, you've invented the bus. Right. Congratulations, <laughs> you've yeah. invented, you know, a daycare center. Yeah. Congratulations, you've invented cash. <laughs> so, like, my my view on, all this, on the legal side of it is it seems playing out similarly to, like, Internet in the 90s. You know, at one point, everyone thought that the only usage for the Internet was pirating music, mm-hmm. right? And then the DMC, DMCA came out, right? Mm-hmm. Digital Mill- Millennium Copyright Act, which kind of gave a blanket uh, operational guidelines to folks like Google, right? So Google was not stealing music, <laughs> right? But 90% of the use cases on, on the internet were, right? So then the internet evolved and became what it is today. That scares me a little bit. I don't disagree. I think it's a completely valid parallel. Um, And I think it's a much better parallel than the usual parallel that people draw to the internet, which is just a hand wave and say, we're in 1998. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But what scares me a little bit about that is just the implication that decentralized systems, just they're sort of teleological arc is to bend towards becoming centralized over time or to by virtue of either regulatory capture or by necessity of like user experience, whatever it is to have one or maybe a handful of centralized entities what, basically what running the show. I mean, like assuming, you know, assuming our overlords have the best intentions, they could come up with something where, if it's really decentralized, right, and it's censorship resistant, right, it's not, it is like closer to Bitcoin than, mm-hmm. let's say, to Hyperledger, that you have like, that that's okay, right? That those those networks are not picking what's running on them, right? And therefore can't be compliant by the sheer virtue of being censorship resistant. Right? I, yeah, I think that the devil is really in the details when you start to get into an idea like that. I think that um, 
I think that the problem becomes, you know, you can have like Apple, right, saying like, oh, we're going to be an open platform for all app developers and blah, blah, blah. But then it's like, okay, to get your app actually listed in the app store, in the Apple app store, is an absolute nightmare, right? Yeah. And, uh, you know, there, it's like the the branding of like, this isn't an, an open, you know, not decentralized. So, so I could publish a website, right, that has like the pirate bay. Yeah. Right. And then Google will not return searches to it. Mm-hmm. So is that exactly. And that's fine. Right. The internet is still open and free and like ideas can permeate and pirate bay <laughs> cannot be shut down. Right. But is it actually open and free then? If, you know, if in a sense, everyone is using Google or at least, you know, everyone in the Western world and sort of, you know, uh, conventional homes is using Google and then they are not getting surfaced. It doesn't have to be the pirate bay, right? Like it could be anything really that just the algorithm doesn't like. And then suddenly you're trapped in this, in this feedback loop where it's not actually open and free anymore. Is it? I mean, but, I, I guess my, I am maybe I take the fiercely individualistic perspective to where Google as a company can do whatever they want, right? Like, and if people use them, they use them. And as long as they don't impede my ability to build a search engine, right, that does its own thing. Like, it's fine if people, 80% of the population goes to Google, because I'm not worried about what the majority of the people do. I'm worried about how is, how is like the powers that be or the majority, how do they like stamp out the minority, right? Yeah. Like, I don't know. This is like, this is one of my favorite. I don't even know if you identify as a libertarian, but a lot of people in crypto do. And my favorite libertarian argument or conversation that I often have with like very hardcore libertarians is they will start saying things to me that don't sound libertarian to me at all. And I'll start to push back on it. And then they'll be like, oh, well, no, but as a libertarian, I am free to believe all of this anti-libertarian <laughs> stuff and you're free to believe whatever you want and like that's why i'm still a libertarian <laughs> it's like there that's where all of these conversations i think get really interesting though genuinely is like there are all of these sort of different layers of belief that people can operate at around like where where it's important to have decentralized systems or open systems or free markets or whatever it is um and and where where sort of I guess practicality begins almost I would say. <laughs> I guess I, this is coming from like kind of my experiences growing up in the USSR, and I wouldn't even say my experiences because I was a kid. So these are like my perceptions of what mm-hmm. it was like to grow up there, and it wasn't so much that people were worried about ideas being spread because everybody knew what was going on it was more that like whether you're gonna get like thrown under the bus for having them yeah right like so in, in some ways like people that are my perspective are like worried about facebook or google having this massive market share like to me these are like first world problems right like okay whatever who cares i don't even use facebook i think the last time i logged in was like three months ago what do i care <laughs> right what like, what I'm worried about is, like, if whether I post a rant on, like, my Twitter feed about how I don't like the president, that I'm not going to get, like, thrown 
the gulags, right? <laughs> but so, okay, I think that, yes, from that perspective, certainly like, oh, what is the algorithm surfacing or, you know, what is the search function surfacing? That does start to feel like a first world problem for sure. Because the first thing, the basis of any of it is, of course, just like freedom of speech in general and having that be defended. But I think it gets to be a really interesting question where you start to ask about, say, you know, these political candidates who are maybe not incumbents, who are up and coming, who have no base to begin with. And this is a big debate, obviously, going on right now of, you know, if Twitter and Facebook and the like aren't surface, aren't allowing them to run ads and then aren't surfacing their content because the algorithm doesn't like them because they don't already have a following that is still itself a form of censorship, right? Like it's not the straight up, like we don't like you political candidate X, Y, Z, and therefore, you know, we're going to throw you in the gulags, but it is still a form of censorship insofar as it's just an unintended, I think actually second order consequence of a lot of the protocols that, that are in place on the internet today. And that's the scary thing to me. Right. Um, So is, is blockchain like a good way for these candidates to raise funds simply because <laughs> no, <laughs> no. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, now. we've, yeah, <laughs> I've, I've deviated far from any sort of blockchain use case here in this conversation. I think I'm just speaking more to like, what is the importance of sort of decentralization anyway? And I think that, you know, it comes back to this question of censorship resistance. I think for me, where any kind of blockchain technology comes in is very specifically around censorship resistance as it pertains to money and transactions, which I I understand and appreciate is why you're asking, like, so should they be <laughs> raising money on a blockchain? It's like, no, because they can still be banked, right? right? Like, yeah. they aren't being censored in that way just because like an algorithm isn't showing their content to people um should a cannabis company in that's based in san francisco and operating perfectly legally maybe consider using cryptocurrency or some kind of blockchain based technology to receive funds and do transactions and bank themselves actually maybe because they have all kinds of issues with banking, especially once you get up to the federal level where any federally chartered bank can't then do business with them, blah, blah, blah. Like that to me is an okay use case, potentially, if like all of the trade-offs make sense for the business, but certainly not for so, for something where you, you have alternatives to be banked. So to you, this is like kind of your whole point of that article is that like right now, the only use cases are people that are like don't have legal means to do financial transactions. Yeah, people that people or institutions that just don't have an alternative for whatever reason. Um, but that to me like that's like a such a huge definition because like I'll, I'll shill Solana for a second. So we're yeah. building something that's super cheap to use. That means that you could like fire off one cent transactions, right? Like or subset. So there's no other way to do this. We're effectively, everybody censored from doing this because Visa or Stripe charge 25 cents, right? So, <laughs> I, yeah, I actually think that that's, I think that that's right. I don't think that it necessarily has to be, like, illegal. And I think that that's where a lot of people 
got the wrong end of the stick or misunderstood what I was attempting to say in in that opinion piece. Um, I actually just today was going and trying to buy like a Shutterstock style stock photo online. And I was like, this thing costs like, I think it was 67 cents. Like what the hell? You know, it's uh, it was literally a stock photo of like a spiral or something. It was a nothing. Um, but I was trying to do everything above board, you know, we're not trying. To <laughs> um, and it occurred to me, I was like, yeah, this, you know, when the time comes that we actually have sort of scalability and and cheap transactions on blockchains, but Solana. You'd, but you'd be able then, to buy an NFT token representing that. Image, yeah, right? exactly. <laughs> for hopefully less than 67 cents for like some black and white stock image right. that I could basically draw by hand. Right, let's um, get this white paper down. And yeah. Like, <laughs> an ICO, right? Cop- <laughs> copyright. Uh, <token>. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Yeah. Yeah, you're all free. All of the listeners are free to take this idea, come to me, fundraise, <laughs> write, a, write a white paper around it. You can build it on Solana. It'll be great. <laughs> yep. Uh, I'm sure you could guess Jill's email. Let's <laughs> Yes. <laughs> um, so, like, uh, there is, like, something interesting to follow that. Like, the internet kind of went from this... I'd say real open free speech platform in the 90s to this kind of closed system of basically Facebook and Google and Twitter. And even Twitter is a very small kind of weird, weird like part of it. Um, and in, for like the vast majority of the folks, it's not really open speech anymore, right? Totally. Because even totally. like one, you have to get past the censors on Facebook or Twitter and then the algorithms to actually reach your target audience will block you anyways. Like, that's weird, right? Are we, are we going to see yeah, similar things, absolutely. you think, running on top of these decentralized platforms? I mean, I think that we already are. Just instead of Facebook, it's Coinbase. And instead of, you know, Instagram or Twitter, it's pick your exchange. Um, I think the fact that exchanges exist they are very important. I'm not like one of these, you know, cypherpunk Bitcoin maximalists. Like if you don't own your own keys, you have no place in this ecosystem sort of people. Um, I think that that's actually a very destructive view to take because I think that if you take that view, then you severely limit the number of people who will have any interest in this technology. Like the reality is just a lot of people don't want to custody their own keys. Um, and on and off ramps obviously have a huge role to play. But that said, I do worry that we'll someday get to a point where, you know, 20 out of the 21 million Bitcoins out there are all held on these exchanges. And if that's the case, then it's kind of like, okay, what is the innovation that we've actually really achieved here? We're able to get these large financial institutions to come to agreement without any lawyers involved, right? Maybe. And without like, with all the risks being known, like with only technology risks, right? If, if all of this is truly like open, then it's impossible for Coinbase to commit fraud and screw Binance, right? If they're in the same network. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I've yet to see the tether audit come through. And so that would be that would be kind of the counterpoint is like I I agree that that is the dream and like that would be what my hope would be of 
Like we can get to a point where, yeah, rehypothecation risk would be at least severely limited, if not impossible, um, where we would see uh, a world in which basically the types of things that went on in 2008 and led to the crisis there uh, would be virtually impossible because, as you say, everything would be sort of transparently auditable. Um, Even if it's not but, auditable, like it's like, I think the, the, the interesting thing there is that like the, those financial systems are now censorship resistant and therefore anyone can enter them. Yeah. And so I think that, I think that that's exactly right. Like the thing that I always come back to when I start to lose hope of like, Oh, like Bitcoin and cryptocurrency is being totally financialized and like, you know, congratulations, you've reinvented the investment bank or whatever it is in this case. (laughs) Um, you know, the thing that I do always come back to is like, well, it's okay, though, because at least we have the option. You have the option to exit the system if you don't want to. Like there is it's not the case that there is just a monopoly or an oligopoly on any of this. It's like if I want to, I can go off the grid. I can custody my own keys. I can spin up my Casa node. I can, you know, do all of the cypherpunk things <laughs> and piece out of the system. I mean, you're still part of the web and your absence from it creates this like profile of who you are that exactly yes. matches who you yes, are, right? indeed, indeed. <laughs> so you can't indeed. like truly, uh, I don't know if you can evade the system because, right? Like, I mean, this was, what was it? Po- post 2001, um, when there was this kind of this huge push of at analyzing data on the internet and figuring out who the bad actors were, they pretty quickly built a graph and then figured out who's talking to who just for the meta metadata, right? The mm-hmm. whole Patriot Act thing. Like we have basically all this information available anyway. So like So do you think the NSA was <laughs> Satoshi? Is that what you're saying? No. <laughs> I doubt it. I, I mean like I don't I don't think there was any like I think it was like an accident. Yeah. Like it it's just as likely that um what's his name is Satoshi. Um, Hal Voldemort. Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> it's just as likely that Voldemort is Satoshi by accident. It doesn't mean that he's a genius or anything. It's just like everyone gets lucky, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's something I have spun around in my head, though. Actually, of like Bitcoin is actually again, at least in the state that it exists today, there's a lot of great work going on around like privacy technology is coupled with Bitcoin, et cetera. Um, and of course, then you have like the whole world of privacy coins, but Bitcoin is like a pretty phenomenal surveillance technology actually yeah, because right. of all of this that you just said of being able to do traffic analysis, et cetera. And going back to those FBI agents, like it's I mean, even Zcash, even if you had perfect kind of cryptographic security on the exchange part because all the entry and exit points are on the internet. Those are ISBs. They're connected somewhere. So yeah, this has become (laughs) a real fascination of mine. I think that like DL, one of the coolest companies in the crypto ecosystem is local Bitcoins, Um, which I don't know how much you know about them. I'll assume listeners don't necessarily know about local Bitcoins, but they've been around since 2013 or 2014. Um, So they're pretty old school within the context of the space. 
And they are basically Craigslist, I would say, for on-ramping and off-ramping into and out of Bitcoin. And what's fascinating to me is, A, they're used so globally. Like, you can go on the website and see what the volumes are for every city in, you know, 100-plus different countries in the world, um, ranging from, you know, sub-Saharan Africa to, uh, you know, Western Europe, ranging from Russia to Venezuela to you name it. It's probably up there. But what's also fascinating is just the different ways in which local Bitcoins get used in all of these places. So when you talk to people in the United States who know about local Bitcoins, often the way that they know about local Bitcoins is in the context of like, oh, yeah, it's like that kind of sketchy website where you can go on and then like find a guy to meet up with you like on a street corner and do basically like a drug deal for Bitcoins where like you show up with cash and then he sends Bitcoin to like some address that you own, whatever. Um, And that is certainly a way that you can use it. Uh, But the other ways that people use it, like a lot of people in Venezuela, for instance, don't meet up in person to use local Bitcoins. They just do, do the transactions online. And What's cool to me there is it basically gives you this knob that you can turn around how private or anonymous you want your on-ramping experience to be. And now, God bless them, like that involves a lot of work with regulators and policymakers, et cetera. Um, and, you know, as KYC and AML and compliance demands continue to evolve, like we'll see where all of that ends up. But... I think that this is such an underestimated issue in the space. It's like, yeah, it kind of doesn't matter how decentralized your network is if you only have these central on-ramps, because that's going to be your point of failure then. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. But also like this human network in and of itself, that's like for anyone that's like running the government, that's exactly what you want to see is you can identify the humans. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, yeah, by and large, you can. That's right. right. And, you know, I've, I've heard of not with local bitcoins, but with other sort of similar companies uh, doing like agent based on and off ramps, etc. Like I've heard of governments doing sting operations, basically imposing as agents in order to to catch people who are trying to on ramp into Bitcoin in places where it's not accepted or not legal, which is obviously also itself uh, a big point of failure but so, so what worries me is like us getting to a state where like these enterprises can can really stamp down the minority like right now like having your opinion not displayed to everybody on twitter is that like that big of a deal if you're a political candidate it is <laughs> Um, if you're if you're a VC trying to get startups to come to you to fundraise, it might be. But, <laughs> Not that I'm speaking from experience. Right. But you can hustle and go get popular, right? Like you can go meet people in the street, right? You can talk to them, right? There's just like so many avenues for speech. If we only have one avenue for financial transactions and yeah. it's through Bitcoin and they made, there's somebody that can control like, you know, like, you know, all the mining pools are, what is it? Six mining pools get to supermajority in Bitcoin, right? Yeah. Uh, 20, I'm surprised it's even that many. I would have thought yeah, that it was less. I, even, I think 20 mining pools yeah. get to 99% hash power. Yeah. 
It's only 20 entities, right? Here's like, the thing. I'm not worried at all about Bitcoin becoming like the only avenue for transacting or saving or whatever. I think that much more likely and a much more salient concern is either the status quo, which is basically like governments and central banks, ultimately at the end of the day, behind the abstraction layers of Bank of America and Chase and whatever it is, being the end-all be-all and the only option. Or even scarier to me anyway, is the alternative of having sort of like Alipays and WeChats of the world being your only option for payments infrastructure. Um, and so to me, I continue to view Bitcoin as an escape valve that, that was, from those other options. That was a very awakening moment for me the first time I went to China, is that I realized that if I like if I lost my handlers, I would starve to death. I right? had no way to pay anybody with, with anything. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And what's what's freaky to me is it's not just China. Like I was walking through an airport in Miami. This was about a year ago. And advertisements everywhere. We accept WeChat and Alipay. In Miami, I went into a Walgreens last week and they accept Alipay. In San Francisco, the one over on Market Street. And I was like, oh my God. Yeah. We all better get our act together because it's coming. (laughs) (laughs) But... Yeah, I mean, and, you know, obviously in the United States, we're nowhere near yet anyway, being the case where those are even commonly accepted, let alone the only option. But yeah, that's what keeps me awake at night. It's it's less, at least at this point, of, you know, being worried about Bitcoin becoming the only option that then having these vulnerabilities. Um, to me, that would be a great problem to have. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, New York actually recently, I think they proposed or passed a law where stores have to have a cash, have to take cash. Really? Yeah. I mean, it obviously, wow. obviously right, like getting, creating a cashless society really hurts the poor. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, it's astounding to me the number of unbanked in the United States, un, under underbanked. Um, I'm forgetting the exact stats right now, but when I first heard them, I was like, there is no way that that can be true. Um, and you know, it's easy when you're not in that position or, you know, when you don't have many people around you in that position or a similar position to forget that that means that, you know, you can't go into many coffee shops and buy yourself a sandwich. You can't order stuff on Amazon, um, you know, all of these barriers. And that to me, this again, I think is a, a misunderstanding. I think often when I talk about censorship and what that looks like, that's a form of censorship, right? Is to not be able to transact in those ways, even if it's not illegal for you to do so. Like if you don't have a bank account or, you know, access to a debit card or a credit card, then yep. that is still still censorship. Yeah, that that's kind of what a how how I look at it is that like removing the financial I guess requirements or the cost the initial upfront cost yeah. to have access to this like global banking system the barriers to entry right, right? yeah barriers yeah. to entry yeah but that you know from my perspective you can kind of narrow that down to like a single 
API call on the internet, right? Like I want to submit this one tiny, the smallest amount of funds from one computer to another one. Like what is the actual cost of that? How do you minimize that? Yeah. Um, and then see what happens again. What are the use cases that need this? A lot of people tend to think of like, as soon as you talk about that, they only think of the bad use cases, right? Totally. But they don't think about buying a picture off of Shutterstock. They right. don't think about, you know, the underbanked guy, uh, you know, who can't buy stuff on Amazon. They don't think about, you know, what does Patreon 2.0 look like? What does this mean for content? Like all of these questions that I think still do come back to censorship. Like I stand by that. It's just not necessarily right. the illegal, sketchy censorship yeah, the, that people's heads go to. It's like the Facebook, Twitter censorship. Right? Exactly. Like I can't exactly. reach an audience, so I need another platform. Yeah. Again, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know if we'll see that that use case will probably take as long to play out as the internet coming from it was 90% of it was piracy, then, yeah. then it was Facebook and piracy. <laughs> okay, so I joked earlier about everyone saying like, oh, it's 1997 in the internet or it's, you know, 1984 in the, whatever. Where do you think we are? Like, what, what is the equivalent year? I was looking at like uh, DAP radar and they're publishing like daily active users and it's like paltry, like 22,000 yeah. daily active users for DAPs. I wonder how many daily active devs there are. My guess, uh, the estimates that I've seen is a, for Ethereum, for the whole Ethereum ecosystem is about 300. 300 total? Yeah. Wow. But if you think of it, okay, 300 times... I feel like I could name 300 devs. <laughs> Just think, think, of, think of it as a company, right? Yeah. Okay, with 300 full-time engineers. Yeah. Let's say their base yeah. salary is 150. Yeah. Right? Yeah. With benefits, that's 200. That's what's your burn there? Uh, 60 million a year? Not low, yeah. Right. So, what's the valuation of a company with 60 million RD spend a year? Yeah. Roughly what Ethereum is today, right? Yeah. 10 billion. Yeah. That's so. an interesting way of backing into it. I never heard that, but I like it's that. It's pretty tough to get 300 full time engineers. <laughs> I guess that's the thing is like, I'm going based off of people shit posting on Twitter, but they're not all yeah. <laughs> active daily yeah. uh, builders, biddlers. I mean, yeah, even if you count all the side projects like us, like, okay, we're building, we're, we're moving the space forward, right? Even if we're building an Ethereum yeah. builder, competitor, or whatever. Yeah. If we fail, those ideas can be just moved into Ethereum, right? If any of them <laughs> are good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no. So, okay, so where do you think we are, though? Based on just this kind of stupid estimate that I use, number of wallets out there, yeah. 50 million. 1996 Internet had 40 million users on the Internet, so somewhere around there. Yeah. Like, cause the way I think of it is, like, okay, you gave me all the money in the world in 96, could I build you a Facebook? Like, even if I knew that social graphs no. are going to be worth half a trillion yeah. dollars. No. Right? No. There's nothing I could have done. No way I could have convinced, you know, people, like, in their mid, in their 40s to, like, or anyone in college on the internet, like, in 1996, to use this thing. Totally. Totally. It's funny. I would have said much earlier, but for the same reason of just, like, so much of... Not just the 
technological breakthroughs and the technical infrastructure that we need in order to build real applications it's just not here yet and i think that we'll actually have a much better sense of that by the end of the year like solana there are a lot of other good layer one projects that are shipping that i think are going to prove to be really important in terms of just advancing even just conversations around all that forward but also just like the behaviors that need to change and evolve in order for any of this to to gain the kind of traction that we're talking about. So, so to me, yeah. like, we have, let's say we get to like 300 million actual self-custody wallets, right? Like, I think that's the, when interesting things start to happen. That was, I think, the, about how many people in the internet we had when Friendster took off. Right? Yeah. And it kind yeah. of went off virally. That was like really totally. the first viral company. Yeah. From what I can remember. 300 million is a lot. Yeah, yeah. But, like, imagine, like, yeah. we could somehow coordinate all of them to, like, I have a credit card that's funded by, you know, 100 million or 50 million people or even 1 million people yeah. that are giving me a microloan. Yeah. Right? Yeah, or, no, or my mortgage is funded through a microloan from, like, 10 million people. Yeah. That would be, that's, I think, is, like... It starts to get interesting. Right? For sure. Because all of a sudden, all of these, like, imagine what happens now... 10 million people, they're part of some bank, they all invest in this bank, right? That bank bids on mortgage-backed securities, I guess, Mm -hmm. right? Then some credit agency here gives me the credit, knowing that they can sell this bank, that sell the mortgage off to these banks, right? So how many people in between, right, just to get this done, for me to get a mortgage? Totally. Right? (laughs) Totally. No, it's it's insane. It's insane. Um, But... Yeah, it'll be interesting. That path, that's an interesting thing to think about is what is that path to those 300 million wallets? I hope that a lot of this stuff that we're seeing talked about right now around Libra, central bank digital currencies, regardless of where it all ends up, I hope that it at least just advances people's understanding and yep. and the education of sort of the general public about all of this. But I mean, Libra, the way I look at it is it's Internet Explorer. Microsoft saying we're going to kill Napster. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like Libra saying we're going to kill all these other chains and it'll be accessible to 3 billion users. Great. Now there's a standard. Yeah. Right? We can all like move forward, get over this hump. Yeah. Um, I don't think Friendster would have happened if not for Internet Explorer being pre-installed on every computer. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. Just a lot of important prerequisites that need to get shipped for any of this to become real. Cool. I think think that does it. Uh, Any any closing thoughts? Yeah, I just I my hope for 2020, I would say, is that things start to get weird again. Like, I think that 2019, and I think this was part of what prompted me to to write that piece about like. All right, everyone, let's be honest. This is all just being used for, you know, purposes of evading censorship was honestly just sort of a frustration on my part of just like, it's been so quiet. Like, you know, okay, everyone is heads down building. That's certainly a good thing. But in terms of innovation around use case or innovation around like go to market strategy, any of these things, it's felt just really sort of stagnant for the last year of just people sort of 
mulling on on the same the same old things. But what can you do with like fifty million blockchain wallets to to which is with an unknown number of actual users, probably about a million actual users. Right. Well, so that's the thing is I think that we need to refocus on growing the pie. I think that everyone talks about, you know, sort of being an Ethereum killer and everyone, you know, has their sort of own territory war happening where they try and plant flags in in other people's lawn. But the reality is it's like the pie is still tiny. We need to focus on growing the pie. And that's, again, where my hope is that things start to get weird again, because that's where you capture people's imagination and, uh, and out, start to grow Outside of Libra in pre-installing Calibra <laughs> on every Facebook user, like, what do you see can grow the pie? I think, I think a lot of it actually winds up being sort of more macro forces of just like, changes in social behavior. I think part of it might be around like what the markets do. I think if we continue to see negative interest rates persist, like people will get more interested in, hey, what's going on over here? I think conversely, if we see a big downturn in the markets, people might start to think twice about all of the money printing that's gone on over the last 10 years and start to pay more attention. Um, And so I think a lot of it is about the narratives that we tell as opposed to just being about the products that we build. So, yeah, I've been looking at like, like you think it's going to be externally driven, like another crisis in the real markets. I think that, I think that's an option. I think it could be. That's, that's an interesting thought. Cause like, I think I'm looking at like, you know, like what would I invest in, in the real markets right now? And it's, nothing really like, yeah i like this just to, unless it's like a crazy bet like synthetic meat like i'm like <laughs> okay what what else like i'm not gonna buy uber stock i hear you right? i hear you <laughs> yeah. yeah like what and the bet in itself is supposed to be a high growth tech company right right, <laughs> right. but, but <laughs> right you look twice at it right like, wait is it yeah but yeah no, it's it it gets very interesting when you start to think about sort of how all of these macro trends start to feed into each other and then feed back into what what we're doing with crypto. So so Jill's view on on crypto adoption is that we're the least worst option. <laughs> <laughs> Basically. <laughs> actually, but that's an important option to have. Yeah. 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 yeah it's like, what's the Winston Churchill quote of like, democracy is the worst form of governance except for all the others. Yeah. And like, Bitcoin is the worst form of value except for all of the others. But, so. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> cool. So uh, it's been awesome to have you. This has been a really good conversation. Yeah, this has been fun. Thank right. you. Thank you. Take care. Cool.